The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Well, I'm, I'm really glad to be with you all this morning. It's an honor for me. Um, you know, I, did, I wanted to take this opportunity. You know, b- both Jonathan um, and, and Brad were students of mine, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, we, we, we really do take the training of future ministers seriously, but we can only work with what we, the material we have. Uh, now, Christy and Allison, those are, that's a completely different category, but with those two, I'm just, it is what it is. Um, I just, of course, I've been at Beeson now. I'm entering my 15th year. It's a remarkable thing to, to, uh, to think about that and God's providence. And um, I will say one of the features of what I get to do for a living, what God's called me to do, and it's, it's actually been surprising, is the, is the remarkable joy that I have to go into churches like this one and see our students out there kind of doing it. It's, it's it, the, the work of the ministry. It's, it's remarkable. So it's a humbling thing for me to be here today, and I'm, and I'm very grateful. Now, you may, you may know this as kind of a background, but I, I was originally asked um, to preach on Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman. Um, and, and uh, you know, Brad was like, you know, it was like a mission impossible thing. If you're up to the task, you can do this, and this message will self-destruct in 30 seconds. And so I, I actually, I mean, I went to the library, I, I, I checked out commentaries, I, I sat in my office. I, I mean, I made some headway on this. And then um, one morning, as my wife and I do with some regularity, I was sitting with my wife on the front porch, and I said, um, Naomi, this is, this is what I'm thinking about, about Proverbs 31. She's like, you might want to rethink that. Um, and uh, so it, it caused me all kinds, I'm just not, I'm not courageous enough to do that one yet, all right? And, and, and in part, um, because I do think Proverbs 31 is, is a remarkable instantiation of what lady wisdom looks like. It's not just a kind of you know, legalistic, moralistic, you know, I, I could just see my wife saying, do you read that text? You have to be the perfect wife, a businesswoman, uh, profitable. I mean, it's, it's a, it's, it can become a very heavy thing, but when you recognize that this is personified wisdom, there's a lot going on there, but I didn't have the courage to do it today, so I'm, I'm happy to admit that. But I, but I also realized that this was the end of your series over the summer on wisdom, um, from the book of Proverbs, and I thought, you know, there's actually few things that might be more helpful to end a series on wisdom than to wrestle with a book like Ecclesiastes. Um, this is a book that's remarkably pertinent, and I think that, I, I find this of some interest, that within the way in which the canon of the Old Testament is shaped, where you have Psalms, and then Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, and Job is mixed in there as well, you have these books like Ecclesiastes and Job that problematize for us what it means to live lives of wisdom. What, what does it really mean to be wise? And what's the end of wisdom? That's the title of today's sermon. And I'm, I'm playing with that phrase intentionally, knowing that the end of wisdom can be understood in two ways, and it needs to be understood in two ways. N- number one is... Um, how, how far, what's the end, how far can wisdom actually take us? When we think of wisdom as, and you've heard this probably all summer, a skill in the art of living. I mean, someone who's a, a good artist in the Bible is someone who has wisdom in that area. That, that, that's a gift of God. Um, someone who's a good business person has wisdom in that area. Or a parent 
uh, that, that, you know, knows how to engage this, um, engages this with wisdom. It's, it's a skilled art in the act of, of living and negotiating life, recognizing that life doesn't come to us as a kind of playbook where if you do this, then that final thing is the, is the natural and necessary outcome. So you have this called wisdom in the book of Proverbs, and it's, it's beautiful. And as you already know this, having engaged the book, it's, it's not an easy formula, is it? I mean, you think about, is it Proverbs 24? Did you do this this summer? I, I don't know. But Proverbs 24, um, answer not a fool according to his or her folly. And then what's the very next verse? Answer a fool according to his or her folly. Um, and, you're, and, and by the way, there are commentaries out there that say that's just a kind of editorial mistake, right? That was someone, someone flubbed there. Um, but I don't think so. I think what you have in just those two tight verses is an invitation to the life of wisdom. There are some times when you need to answer a fool according to his or her folly. And there are other times when you should not answer a fool according to his or her folly. Good luck figuring it out. Almost like that famous Bible verse, train up a child in his or her way, and in the end, they will not depart from it. And I always kind of under my breath say, until that doesn't happen, right? Um, Because we recognize that wisdom is given to us as a kind of general guide to what it means to live life under the sun. But you have books in the Bible, this is what I love about it, in the Bible, like Job and Ecclesiastes that problematize this for us. I mean, have, have you read the book of Job lately? Apparently, in the recent Atlantic Monthly, there's a new translation of Job that's out. I'm going to get it um, by a fellow named Greenspan, I believe is his name. And it's a, I mean, Job is a book that's had a long and enduring influence on really the Western intellectual imagination. It's, it's a remarkable book. And I don't know if you've been troubled by Job or not. <laughs> My hunch is you have, right? Um, but here you have these three friends that show up with Job. You remember this? So you have Job 1 and 2, all hell breaks loose in Job's life. It's kind of a remarkable opening scene. Um, and all and this is great. And all this Job did not sin with his mouth. I mean, I guess it's, who can say that about somebody? But here Job is, is, is suffering in an excruciating way in a kind of divine cosmic drama that he has no knowledge about, and he doesn't sin with his mouth. Um, But then after chapter 3, things get a little bit strange, right? You have these three friends that come. In the end of chapter 2 of Job, they see Job at a distance. They don't even recognize their old friend. They sit around a campfire with Job for, do you remember this? Seven days, and they did not say a word. I I love this because those seven days when Job's friends did not speak were his friends at their best, right? But the moment they start to talk, the train goes immediately off the tracks. And then they begin to offer, you ready for this, wisdom to Job. And I don't know if this bothered you. This bothered me very much as a young person. I can remember feeling this. When you begin to read the words of Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz, great dog names, by the way, if you're looking for some, right? But Bildad, Zophar, Eliphaz, when you, when you engage these, these figures and what they're saying to Job... I remember even thinking as a child, Houston, we've got a problem. I can find Bible verses to support what they're saying. In other words, what they're saying is not all that bad. It doesn't seem like, at least not on the surface. So what you have in the book of Job is an example or exhibit A of wisdom being deployed in an unwise way. 
So even wisdom as, a, as something that's passed on is not used in our lives necessarily in ways that are wise. And then you come to a book like Ecclesiastes, which I'm, I'm very foolishly this morning, I've decided to preach on the whole book. Um, Brad told me you, it's hour and a half sermons. I don't know what you're used to around here. Um, we won't do that. I want to preach on the whole of the book of Ecclesiastes because I think this book is so, how else to put this, it sits in our front yard right now. This is a book that was going to, I mean, it's so old, and yet it seems so remarkably modern, um, next-door neighbory kind of thing, that's rest, making you and me wrestle with life's most pressing existential questions. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be? What does it mean to live in this world with, in life under the sun? And do we have any hope in the middle of it all. This is, what, this is why we have here with Ecclesiastes as the end of wisdom, both wisdom's limit and also wisdom's end as its goal. What's the goal? What's the end game of wisdom worked out in its best with life under the sun? So I would, if you have your Bibles, I'd even just look at the first few verses. The words of the preacher, Kohelet, son of David, king of Jerusalem, and then he says, the line that gets repeated over and over and over. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You heard Christy read it this morning in the readings that she had. Vanity. Uh, the, are you ready? This, this could potentially get boring, so hang with me for a second. Um, vanity is a Hebrew word, which is um, actually a, a metaphor. It's meant to be a metaphor. And as you know this, with metaphors, they're open to all kinds of possible readings. Metaphors don't come to you like a metaphor equals this. It's, it's, it's meant to be a kind of artistic thing. Now, and the Hebrew word is, is hevel, um, which simply means breath or smoke. Uh, I, I was doing some lecturing uh, years ago at a, at a seminary in Florida. And I, I showed up at the lectern to lecture and um, a, a very famous Old Testament scholar by the name of Bruce Waltke had just been lecturing before. And I noticed underneath the lectern, <laughs> there was a, a, a cigarette tray with a cigar in it. And I was like, number one, I didn't know Waltke smoked cigars while he lectured, but I, all of a sudden I like him a lot more. I don't know why. No, but he had this, this ashtray here with a cigar in it, and I asked somebody, what's, what's this about? And they said he, he used that in his wisdom class um, to demonstrate for the students what hevel is, what vanity is. So he pulled out a cigar, and he lit it, and he puffed on it, and he blew the smoke out, and the smoke was there, and then it was gone, and he pointed at it, and he said, hevel, vanity, a fleeting. Think about all the interpretations that we have on this word, and I've brought some of them for you this morning. Vanity, which I'm not even sure what that means from our English tradition. We'll leave that to the side. Absurdity, some will say. Absurdity of absurdity. Everything is absurd. Um, maybe more sort of nihilistic reading is meaninglessness of meaninglessness. Everything is just meaningless. And if I were forced into a corner and said, you've got to choose one of these definitions, and I'm not sure we need to choose just one, but I'm going to go with one this morning. It would be fleeting, unable to hold on to something. Fleeting in two ways. Number one, in the sense of not being able to grasp 
the essence of a thing, to really get at it, and to sink your teeth into the meat of what a thing actually is. It can't be extracted to its fullness in the sense of being able to be enjoyed. And I want to stop on with this for a second before I go to the other meaning of, of fleeting. But have you thought about that? Uh, I'm, I'm in my 40s now, which is weird too. Um, and one of the things that's, I think, humbling about being on a university campus is the fact that the university campus like Sanford, are some of you Sanford people here? Yeah. I mean, the thing about Sanford campus for someone like me is it almost becomes a kind of trope of some sort because these undergrad co-eds, I've been at Sanford 15 years, they have stayed the same for 15 years, all right? I mean, like, they're always 18 to 23-ish, right? There they are. And they just walk around, and as I've, you know, I came to, came to Beeson as a 29-year-old, and I can remember when I first came, we, you can talk like this. Now they open the door for me, kind of thing. Like, sir, you know, go ahead. So I'm, I'm getting older. That group, almost in a monolithic way, stays the same. And, and as, as I've aged, this aspect of hevel, of vanity, I think has seized me in ways that have been really kind of existentially challenging. Life can't be grasped. The best of our moments are things that can't be extracted to their fullness. I call this, for example, uh, the Christmas night syndrome that you've all experienced as a child, where you build up all this anticipation for Christmas, and whether you open gifts on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, you rip through it and you enjoy it for the moment that you have it. It's all you know, bells and whistles, but then there's Christmas night, and tomorrow's going to be the 26th, and I can remember those acute feelings of a child thinking, is this all there is? Is that it? All the buildup for that, and now that moment's gone. The essence of a thing cannot completely be, be grasped. Um, I, I, I've told some of my students at this school that if, if, if I weren't a Christian, um, I, I think I would probably be a Schopenhauerian. I don't know if that's a, it's not really a religion, it's a philosopher uh, from the 19th century. Now, here's a philosopher whose name you probably do know, Frederick Nietzsche. Have you all heard of him, right? Well, Schopenhauer was, in effect, Nietzsche's teacher. Uh, the best of Nietzsche's thoughts were already there with Schopenhauer before him, and he was a dyspeptic, ornery guy from the late 19th century, you know, bald with big lamb chops. I don't have the courage to do that, but I wish I could pull that off. Um, just look kind of ornery, but Schopenhauer put his finger, I think, on the exposed nerve that Ecclesiastes is also trying to describe in its own way. And that is humans are bound to a certain kind of suffering that they cannot transcend. You can't transcend it. And here's the suffering that you cannot transcend. We live between the vortex of, number one, really desiring things that we don't have. I mean, the experience that you don't have or the thing that you don't have or the ambition that's not been realized yet, we live with this kind of suffering of desiring what we don't have. That's why a lot of, you know, 18-year-old or 16-year-old boys, this is indelicate here, but a lot of 16-year-old boys in the Christian church who have committed themselves to purity, to a marriage, are praying that Jesus doesn't come back until after their honeymoon, <laughs> right? 
Because it's like, this is, this is, there's just this deep desire for that thing, right? Some, some teenage boys, their life versus the Apostle Paul is better to marry than, than to burn, right? That, that, that sort of thing. So you have that. So we desire things that we don't have, Schopenhauer tells us, but then he goes on to say something else. But then we also know the experience of finally attaining the thing we so badly wanted and in time growing bored with it. So we want it. And then when we have it, it doesn't quite live up to what we thought the expectations might be. I'm going to come back to him before our morning is over, but St. Augustine, 4th century, early 5th century theologian, was keen on this particular problem here. Because only God can be really and fully enjoyed. Everything else is a pale shadow. And as you move through life and you have the various desires that you have in your heart for something or some experience or some promotion or some whatever, you recognize that those things cannot bring to you what only God can bring. And Ecclesiastes is expressing that for us in this really profound way with hevel of hevel. Everything is vanity. Everything is fleeting. But there's also another sense of this aspect of a fleeting character of life. And that, that is, it's also fleeting in a temporal sense. It's in a fleeting in an essential sense. We can't grab it. We can't extract it. Even the best moments of our life, we can't seem to suck all the marrow out of it. But we also know that our lives are moving. And they're moving in time with a kind of tyrannical force. Nothing can be held on to. Naked we come into the world, and naked we leave it. And it becomes like sand in our fingers. You want a, a lesson in humility? Here's one for you. And I had this conversation with myself with some frequency. They say you can talk to yourself just as long as you don't answer. That's when it's problematic. But I talk to myself. Um, do you ever think about 150 years from now? What will that be? 2170? Somewhere around then? You ever think about that? Birmingham, Alabama? Here's a humbling thing for all of us. Except for maybe a few of you, nobody's going to know our name. Nobody. Now, I like to walk into cemeteries. I think it's, it's, my, it's, a, it's a weird side that I have. But I love going to cemeteries. Just kind of walking through and thinking, great place to think. Um, I've, I've sat on top of Jonathan Edwards Cemetery. Just sat there. Just talked a little bit with him, right? Um, what do these cemeteries testify to us? That all those people there... They lived, and they had families, and they wondered how they were going to pay their bills, and they loved their children, and they were concerned about their parents, and they lived life just like you and I did, and they're gone. And now we don't remember their names anymore. I live in a house in the south side of Birmingham that was built in 1910, where the Goldstein family lived there for many, many years. And now they're gone, and here this other family is ours now that we're occupying that space, making memories, fighting, loving, enjoying life, suffering in life, and in 100 years, another family will be in that house. And the author to Ecclesiastes wants you to know it's hevel. It's fleeting. You can't hold on to the thing because of its essence, and you can't hold on to the thing because your life is moving by like sand through our fingers. And then he goes on to give us three focal points of life's fleeting character. He stresses in this whole book three areas where he has felt acutely what it means to enter into hevel of hevel, or vanity of vanities, or fleetingness of fleetingness. 
He does it first, and these were all the verses, by the way, that Christy read for us. He does it in chapter 2 in a really poignant way. In the first eight verses of chapter 2, he shows us that pleasure is fleeting. I won't read all these to you, but you can read it on your own. Here are some of the big things that come out in these first eight verses. I gave myself to laughter. I gave myself to wine. I gave myself to possessions, or if I can put it in our terms, to toys that I thought would make me really happy. I gave myself to entertainment, paying singers of all kinds to come in and perform for me. I gave myself to all of that. And every last one of them is vanity. Every last one of them is fleeting. None of them can offer me fully and completely what I'm really, what I'm really after. Well, he goes on to say in verses 9 through 11 that he looked at the, at the labor of his hands. Look at verse 9. So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom remained with me, and whatever my heart desired, I did, I did not keep from them. I considered, verse 11, all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. In other words, I looked long and hard at all that I'd given my effort to, my labor, my job, my vocation, and I realized at the end of the day that even that was something that I couldn't really hold on to, it was fleeting, and I couldn't get to the essence of the thing in any way that gave ultimate satisfaction for all the time and the effort that one gives to that. Can I, can I, I mean, I don't know many of you, but I'll, I'll give you a, a Ginellette illustration of this. Um, where I work, if you want to get promoted or, you know, a raise, you got to write a book. Um, I just came off of a, of a sabbatical, five-month sabbatical, not, not as long as your pastor's, but a five-month sabbatical. Um, it were, I'm sorry, it was longer than yours. <laughs> um, at where where I, I was supposed to be writing a book, right? Um, so And I've done some of this now, you know, where you actually have, I mean, as an 18-year-old, I couldn't conceive of it. So you have this little thing that you spent about three years working on that now comes out, and, and, a, and a press actually edited that for you and, and, and put it, typeset it, and put some glue on the back of it and a cover around it, even thought about a cover design for you. Oh, my goodness. And it arrives in the mail, and then I walk through the BS. There's a reason why, well, I should I always wonder if there's a reason why the biblical study section of the library is the BS section. I don't, I don't know what I mean. The, I, I walk through the BS section. I walk through the BX section, and I see rows of books on the second floor of the Sanford Library that are in my field. And there's going to go my little one like that in that slot right there. And you know what I think about when I see that? Vanity of vanities. All, all the labor that goes into this for that little square space in 100 years, no one's going to be reading that book. I think that's, that's the toil of my life. Well, that's what I, that, and that's what God's called me to do. And by the way, I'll still do it. I'm called to do that. I mean, you may feel that as well, whatever vocation God's called you to. All the hundreds of people you work with in physical therapy. All the people that you work with in your business. All the, and the list could go on. All the students that you taught, right? 
And you think about it, and it's, it's, it's fleeting. The toil, the labor of the hands can come, and then it goes. And as time goes on, what's the long term? You can see how this runs. And then finally, finally he says that wisdom, even wisdom, is vanity. Verse 12, and you heard Christy read this so well. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness. And what's the logic here in chapter 2? Well, wisdom is much better than folly. In other words, what Proverbs says is right. The, the foolish path, the end of that is destruction. And I talk that way with my kids all the time. All the time. Because, you know, we're, we, we have, there's some bad press out there. And, and you've got to think about how you talk with young people on these, on, uh, along these lines. And I, I'm thinking about one of my sons in particular. I'm like, listen, it takes courage and wisdom to believe that what God says isn't just God's law. It is that. But it's better. It's better. Like all the other things out there are shimmera. They're, they're sort of vague imitations of what God is really offering to you. So I know it might feel to you like a big fat don't do this. But it really is a big hug from God saying, I love you. Follow in my path. This is the better way. So choosing wisdom is better than choosing folly. But even the choice of wisdom, and this is, the, this is the kind of haunting part where you can tell that this is an old man who's either having a kind of midlife crisis, and I believe in that, by the way, or he's having a late-life crisis. And he's thinking to himself, I gave myself to wisdom and not folly, and I know that was the better path. I know it is, but guess what? I'm going to die just like a fool. I'm, they're going to have a funeral for him, they're going to have a funeral for me, and both of us will go the way of all humanity. We're all going to die colleague of mine at Beeson, Dr. Devine, for those of you who are there, um, he shoves books down my throat, and he did so recently uh, in, in a novel by, by John Williams entitled Stoner. Any of you read this? It is If you're into fiction, this, this has been one of the best I've read in a long time. I thank Mark for this book. And it's the story of an English professor at the University of Missouri in the early 20th century from his entry into the college as an undergrad to when he dies as an, as an associate professor, not full professor, as an associate professor at the end of his career. Um, and the final scene, I mean, he'd given himself to his students. He'd given himself to teaching. He loved the craft of what he was called to do, and he was good at it. And the final scene is Stoner reaching over to the one book that he wrote in his whole career, and he's holding it on his bed as he looks out over the quad of the university, or at least sees onto the university campus, and he's fingering his book that nobody reads anymore. And then he passes into eternity. It's heavy stuff. Because all of us have to go that way at one point or time, and we will all go the path of all human beings. And here you have the author to Ecclesiastes, forcing us, it's a little uncomfortable, isn't it? Forcing us to face that reality. Because you can play as much as you want to. Um, but there's still uh, the bell tolling, and it tolls for us. So where does it leave us with this? I mean, and by the way, I believe all of this. I believe it's not just true because, well, I believe it's true because God tells us in Ecclesiastes it's true, but I also believe it's true existentially. You will all feel this at one point. If you don't feel it now, I promise you, you will. So where are we left? Here's where we're left. Two things. And I, this is why I love Ecclesiastes. Look at chapter 5, verse 18 to 20. Chrissy, did I have you read that? I don't even remember if I did or not. Look at chapter 5, verses 18 through 20.
Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting. This might come as a surprise to you. Is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. And all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Now that sounds maybe problematic. And we're going to order it in a second towards something larger. But what you have here, and this, by the way, is a, is a kind of red thread that shows up throughout the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Life is hevel. It's fleeting. It's fleeting because you can't hold on to the essence of a thing, and it's fleeting because our lives are temporal and moving toward a final end. And because of that, because of that truth, enjoy the good gifts that God has given you in this world. Enjoy them. Those moments with friends around a table laughing. Eat it up. Enjoy it. The time when you're with your family. Um, someday if God gives you a family, or if you're in one now, and, and <laughs> I've got four children, and there's a moment of peace. Ah! Suck the life out of that. Enjoy it. I can remember when my wife and I only had one child. We call those the good old days. Um, and, and we were walking around our little subdivision. Uh, we lived in Pelham at the time. Now we live in the city. We lived in the Pelham at the time. And we're walking the subdivision. And we have our little three-bedroom, you know, quote-unquote starter house. And we're walking the neighborhood. And we have our child there. And, and I'm actually bringing home a paycheck. It's like the first time in our whole marriage I'm actually bringing home some money. Not a lot, but at least some. And, and, and we bo- I can remember this. We both looked at each other. It was one fall afternoon. And we were like, it just, does it get better than this? I mean, this is, this is good. The Danish philosopher Kierkegaard was famous for saying that people so hedonistically look for pleasure, sort of a headlong, passionate pursuit of pleasure, that when you actually stumble upon it, you blow right by it. And here I think the author to Ecclesiastes is saying, look, I mean, if I can put it in an old sort of hymn language, count your many blessings, name them one by one. Count them. Be thankful. Life will rarely come to you, and no, many of you know this, Life will rarely come to you as all sunshine and no rain, or all rain and no sunshine. They tend to not be proportionate one to another, but most of your life will be a little bit of sunshine and a little bit of rain, depending on which one is greater than the other. And here, the author to the Ecclesiastes is saying, enjoy your life. Enjoy the goodness that God has given to you in this world, in this material world. Eat it up and enjoy it. I... Um, I was on the elevator this week at Beeson with a man whom I love dearly, and I know many of you do as well, Robert Smith, who's become a father to me in so many ways. And we were on the elevator, and he told me that his mother, who passed away, went to be with the Lord this summer, godly woman. And here's my colleague, who's in his 60s, torn up over the loss of his mother. She's beautiful, actually. And uh, he said, my mother's last words to me were, son, enjoy your life. Enjoy your life. And if you hear that abstracted from where we're about to go with the rest of the sermon, that might sound really like something's not right there. This thing's off. Like, what about God and all that stuff? Um, we'll get to that. But here you have the author of Ecclesiastes saying, life under the sun, enjoy your life and the good gifts that he gives to you, the portion that he's given to you. 
Uh, we were in Scotland for the past five months, or at least from January to May, not the past five months, and uh, in, the, in the small city of St. Andrews, Scotland. And um, uh, St. Andrews is where they filmed the opening scene of that famous scene of Chariots of Fire, right? You know the movie, the story of Eric Liddell, and they're all running down the beach, and you have dun, 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 that's going on there. Uh, so that, and and, and they, they, we, we would sort of walk that beach with some regularity. So I forced my children one night. I said, you're going to do this whether you like it or not. I sat all of them down, and I said, we're going to watch Chariots of Fire. Right? And so they're sitting there, and they, they didn't like it until they, until they did, actually. But at first, I mean, it's classic 80s cinematography, chintzy, you know, canned music, the synthesizer, and the, the, everything kind of slows down, you know. It's, it's, it's cheesy. But, there's a, but I wanted my kids to watch this movie for one scene. And when the scene came, it said, shh, shh. Listen, everybody, this, this is why I made you watch this movie. And it's the final scene when Eric Little is running around the corner in this race um, in, in the Paris Olympics, and he's running around the corner, and then the, it slows down, and his voice is, is, uh, comes in over on top of the scene, and, it's, and you can see him running. It's also a motion, and he says, God, God made me to run. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. I feel his pleasure. And that's the next portion of where Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes leaves us. Those final verses that you heard. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is the whole duty. So can I put together this enjoyment of life and fearing God within one tableau, within one sort of view for you, because I think they need to be understood together. The author to Ecclesiastes is calling you in your life under the sun, recognizing that everything is fleeting and you can't grab the essence of things, to properly order your loves, to get your desires in the right order one with another, so that the good gifts that God gives you in this world to be enjoyed, and he gives them to you freely, they're not to be enjoyed as an end, because if you turn them into an end, hevel, it's like sand through the fingers. Like, I can't get enough of it. I, I feel this with my children. Like, I'm, this moment is so beautiful, but I can't quite grab it. And when I try to grab it, then, it's, then, it, then I know it's gone. So when I make something that God has given me as a good gift and end, everything gets disordered. I, I, I've turned, to use classic Christian theological language, I've turned idolatrous because I've taken the gift and I've turned it into the giver. And that's what I think Solomon is doing for us here in Ecclesiastes. All these good gifts that he gives to you are means. They're, they're gifts that are toward the ultimate end of enjoying him and fearing him. Ordering your whole life to its ultimate end, wisdom's end, namely God. And I will tell you, as someone who's halfway along the way, if I'm going to die around 80... I'll probably die sooner than that, but if I, if, I, if I go normal path, right, I'm halfway along the way. Oh, I've got glasses. There they are. That this, I think, will be the constant struggle of your existence, ordering your desires, leaning into a life of repentance where you know that the gift that God has given you, I've turned it into an end. I've made it that again. Lord, I need your help. Lord, have mercy upon me. I was in bed with my, uh, lying down with my middle son, who's my kind of philosopher in the family. And um, Jackson, this was years ago, Jackson looked at me, was trying to help him get to sleep, and he said, Daddy, do you love me more or God more? So it's, it's, I was like, go to sleep. Right? <laughs> um, 
kind of questions. And I thought, Jackson, what are, and I didn't tell him, you know, Augustine dealt with this so, so many years ago. But I said, Jackson, that's a great question. Because I'm not forced to answer the question the way in which you framed it. I love you. And in my loving of you, it drives me toward my ultimate love of God. But if I turn you into God, Jackson, things are going to get all out of whack in our relationship and in our family. So that's the end of wisdom. The ordering of our loves, the ordering of our affections, taking the good gifts that God gives us and seeing them as his gifts toward the ultimate end of enjoying him forever. But I'd be, I would be remiss this morning, I would fail you, if I left all of this within the sort of resources of your own intellectual or spiritual abilities to pull this thing off. I'd fail you. Um, because we all know that we're going to struggle with this till the day that we die. That's why I'm with Martin Luther on this. Repentance is not a one-time thing. As Christians, we lead lives of repentance from beginning to end. There's a famous scene of John Calvin on his deathbed. I don't know if you like Calvin or not. I kind of had a little bit of affection for the guy, even though he was ornery and dyspeptic. No, but I like Calvin, 16th century theologian, and he's on his deathbed. You can see this, search it on the Internet. He's on his deathbed, and, and here's Calvin. His you know, cheek, cheeks are sunken. He looks awful. There on his deathbed, he's got that sort of medieval head gown thing on and uh, surrounded by people in the painting. And I've read enough biographies on Calvin to know what was actually going on in real time in that moment. Do you know what was happening in that moment? As, this is John Calvin. As he's dying, he's surrounded by his friends who are, who are reminding him of the truth of the gospel. Calvin wanted people on his... He didn't want final unction from the priest. He wanted people to remind him on his deathbed that what Jesus had done for him was true and was real. And there is a reason why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians identifies Jesus as wisdom. He's our wisdom. You're not called to find the resources of wisdom within yourself. Dig deep. Pull yourselves up by your moral bootstraps. Get going. The call to wisdom from the standpoint of the whole of the Bible is a recognition that wisdom became a man in the person and work of Jesus. And to order our lives toward him and to see what he's done for us is to release us into the freedom that we have from ourselves to love him and to love others. So, Lord, we ask you to seal these things in our hearts and our minds. We're not wise. But you told us, O oh Lord, that if we ask you for it, you'll give it, and you'll give it freely. And you also told us, O oh Lord, that wisdom has the face of your Son. Release us into lives, Lord, that are ordered around our following of Jesus, so that the good gifts that you've given us in this world to be enjoyed in our small time of life under the sun are gifts that are meant to draw us into the eternity and the beauty, and the goodness of your very self. That's wisdom's end. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.